0: Well, hey, everybody. It is great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online. I'm honored to have you along for the ride. And before we get going today, I need to give a little public service announcement to the dads, okay? You need to do right what I did wrong. Uh, My wife is away with about 100 of our Anthem students up, up at a camp in northern Michigan. She took our two oldest kids, but as we have four, I had our two youngest kids. And I thought, now what would a really awesome dad do with two kids under the age of 12 on a Saturday afternoon, and it hit me, Sky Zone. You familiar with this? Trampoline park, bouncing off the walls. It was going to be awesome, and I got my wristband, and I got on there, and I jumped, and I was having a great time until my lower back made a noise that, you know, shouldn't be. And then in that moment, writhing in pain, as I looked out on the floor, all the trampolines, I noticed there was no one, like, under the age of 12 jumping, (laughs) except for me. And then I thought, but where are the dads? And they were all in the corner with flasks. No, not really. But <laughs> and, and I thought, I, so do right what I did wrong. If you're over the age of, let's say, 30, be careful with the trampoline park. It's not a great idea. Anyway, today we get to continue a series that we began last week called Six Things That You Should Know About the Bible. And it's a set of talks that is based on some things that I've discovered teaching the Bible Almost every week for the past 20 years. And I've become convinced that these things can actually help you read the Bible as it was intended to be read. And that, as it turns out, is a really big deal. I mean, if you think about it, the Bible has been without question the most influential printed document of all time. Uh, it's no exaggeration to say that it has shaped religious belief and practice for millions of people all over the world for thousands of years. But here's the thing. Um, I don't actually think the Bible is what many people think that it is. And here's what I mean by that. I'll, I'll say it like this. Uh, though the Bible looks like a book, and it really does, right? Uh, it doesn't read like a book because it isn't really a book. And if that surprises you, you're like, okay, it, it looks like a book... But it isn't a book. What is it? I would say it's more like a collection or a small library of 66 books uh, written, by, uh, written over 1,500 years by around 40 different authors. And as we mentioned last week, these authors were real people living in real places at real times. And so consequently, and not surprisingly, their writings were profoundly influenced by the social and political and cultural realities In which they lived. I'm telling you, almost more than anything else, keeping that reality in mind will help you approach the religious documents in the Bible with the proper expectations. And and in this series for six weeks, I get to unpack the specifics of what I mean by that. And as I said last week, I can't wait. Okay, so with our time together this weekend, I want to continue the conversation that we started last week. And if you weren't with us last week or if you're visiting for the first time today, I want to take a few moments just to catch you up. Uh, Because last week, we began the series by discussing how, like at the very highest level, the Bible is organized around a series of covenants. And we also said that in ancient times, a covenant was basically an, an agreement that defined the terms of a relationship. Well, as it turns out, the authors of the Bible recorded a few different covenants that at times defined the terms of relationship between people and God. In other words, they outlined what specific people needed to do in order to maintain peace in their relationship with God. And then we went on to say, and this is pretty cool, um, most of us are already familiar with the two most famous covenants in the Bible. They're called the Old Covenant, or Old Testament, and the New Covenant, or New Testament. Covenant and Testament, those words are used interchangeably in the scholarship. Uh, So the Old Testament outlined the terms of relationship between God and the people of ancient Israel for around 1,500 years leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus. And then the New Testament outlines, as in presently outlines, the terms of relationship between God and the entire world following the crucifixion of Jesus okay so that established at the end of our time together last week I wanted to kind of point you to where we were going this week and I noted that while reading the Bible it's absolutely imperative to identify the covenant under which a specific rule was written because if you don't well the Bible can be really confusing to read and apply And I wanted to give you another example of this this week, and so I did a little search on Google, and I found an absolutely stunning example, which I will now bless you with. Consider this rather awkward instruction from the Old Testament, and it has to do with a specific type of interpersonal conflict. So it's found in a book called Deuteronomy, and in that book, the author tells us the following. He writes, If two men are fighting, okay, And the wife of one of them comes to rescue her husband from his assailant, okay? And she reaches out and seizes him by, oh, (laughs) awkward, okay, just reading the Bible, okay? Uh, You shall cut off her hand, okay? So that's very clear, uh, but I know what a few of you are thinking, like, what in the world are we supposed to do with that? I mean, this is clearly another one of those verses that you won't find on a coffee mug at the local Christian bookstore, Okay? But I have been doing some research and we might put out a line just as a fundraising opportunity here at Keystone. But anyway, fear not. Uh, as far as you and I and this rule, um, this is some good news. This rule is not for us. <laughs> some of you were like, woo, right? Uh, It's not for us even though it's in the Bible, and that's the point I want to make. It's in the Bible, but it's not for us. In fact, years ago, my wife and I were on a study tour in Turkey where many of the letters uh, written to New Testament churches uh, were located, and our guide said something about this that I will never forget. He said, though all of the Bible was written for you, not all of the Bible was written to you. And so consequently, knowing which parts are to you can clear up a lot of the confusion and the frustration that's often characterized the faith journeys of Jesus' followers who literally are just trying to do what the Bible tells them to do. Um, Okay, so now with the rest of our time today, I want to show you the, the confusion about the covenants and their respective rules, like which rules are for followers of Jesus, really have been a part of the church since the very beginning. And and to that end, I want to explore the specifics of what happened when Jesus' first followers, like all of whom who were Jewish and had grown up under the old covenant rules, had to embrace the terms of the new covenant that was established when Jesus died on the cross. And spoiler alert, it did not go well, at least not at first. Uh, In fact, instead of adopting the terms of the new covenant Jesus had had given his life to establish, his first followers attempted to sort of blend or mix and match the old with the new. And and as it turns out, the consequences of that blending, of that mixing and matching, were tragic, both for them and for any of us who try to blend the covenants today. So let me, let me show you what I mean. I'll, I'll set it up for you and then we'll take you to the text. Um, after his resurrection, Jesus spends 40 days with his first followers before giving them the marching orders that would carry them for the rest of their lives. And so this is what Jesus tells his disciples shortly before leaving them to launch the church. He says, go and make disciples... Of all nations, and if you're familiar with this text, some of us might have actually had this one on a coffee mug, but um, of all nations, that was sort of the showstopper because this had been a Jewish thing, and Jesus says, no, this is a global thing. This is something God is doing through Jesus, or through the Jewish people as well, but for the world. He goes on baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and he says, teaching them to obey, and this is huge, and again, I've read this a hundred times, and if you're not paying attention, you blow right by it, and teaching them to obey Everything I have commanded you. And, and so if we're familiar with what Jesus said, you know, it, again, it's easy to just blow by it, but it's critical to note what he didn't say. In other words, Jesus doesn't say, he makes absolutely no reference to any of the Old Testament laws in his commission to his first followers. He says, I want you to pass along what I have taught you. And that, as it turns out, is a critical distinction. Anyway, after Jesus' departure, and in spite of the mandate to make disciples of all nations, uh, Jesus' first followers, who had all grown up in the north of Israel in these small towns, they pretty much stayed in Jerusalem and told people in Jerusalem about Jesus. And so consequently, uh, many of the first people to place their faith in Jesus were Jewish. And that's a good thing. But there was an unintended consequence because as more and more Jewish people entered the Christian faith, the early church took on a distinctly Jewish flavor. And practically, that meant that many practices and traditions from the old covenant began to infringe in the new covenant expectations that Jesus had for his church. And you say, well, what's the big deal? Well, that actually threatened to pollute what Jesus intended. And so you think, well, what in the world did God do in response to this growing threat? Well, What happens is that Jesus recruits one of the most significant figures in the early church. Uh, He was an unlikely character when you first meet him, but he was an old covenant rule-loving Jewish religious leader named Paul. And when we first meet Paul in one of the books in the New Testament, he's a man absolutely convinced that Christianity was a cancer within Judaism that needed to be stopped at all costs. And so one day, as the story is told, literally while on a mission to arrest Christians, Paul comes face-to-face with the resurrected Jesus. And in that moment, he realizes and recognizes something incredibly powerful, that he was wrong, that in Jesus, God had done something new, and that now on the other side of the death and resurrection of Jesus, pretty much everything had changed for everyone And as Paul is entering the reality of this this blinding moment, he also learns that God desired to use him to take the message of the new covenant established in Jesus' blood to non-Jewish people. They were called Gentiles in the text, people not of Jewish descent. In other words, Paul learns that he was the one who was going to translate the good news of what was accomplished by the Jewish Messiah to the non-Jewish world. And Paul accepts this new mission, and eventually he and his friend Barnabas begin to travel and begin to teach both Jews and Gentiles about the new covenant. And if you read the accounts in the New Testament, you see they they always had a pattern. Whenever they would enter a new city, they would first go to the synagogue uh, in these cities, and they're scattered around the Mediterranean Rim. And they would go to the synagogue, and because of Paul's credentials, he would be invited to speak. And when he was invited to speak, he would begin to share about how Jesus' death on the cross had fulfilled and therefore negated the need for the law of Moses. And that never went well for Paul, as you can imagine. So he and Barnas would be thrown out of the synagogue and labeled heretics, and then they would take their message to the Gentile populations, and they would go into the markets and begin to tell people about Jesus. And Gentile people began to come into the church and join the Jesus movement. Well, eventually, some of the more tradition-loving Jewish Christians in Jerusalem heard about what Paul and Barnabas were doing, and in response, they sent representatives to the same cities that Paul and Barnabas had visited in order to deliver a message from headquarters to these Gentile believers Well, that in order to become a Christian, you had to follow all the laws of the Old Testament. And and we kind of look at that and go, yeah, what's the big deal? Well, that was a complicated proposition to say the least. So much so that around, th- uh, that around 300 miles north of the city of Jerusalem, this conversation reached a boiling point, and an early Jesus follower named Luke recorded what happened for us there in his letter that made its way into the New Testament. The letter is called ACTS, A-C-T-S, The Actions of the First Disciples of Jesus. So here's what Luke tells us happened. He said, Certain people came down from Jerusalem, to Antioch. That was the city where it hit the boiling point, And we're teaching the believers unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And that I am telling you, that message would have been hard to receive especially for the guys. Right? Because Gentile babies weren't circumcised. Jewish babies were. And so what this meant essentially is that well, salvation required surgery. And I'm sure more more than a few of the guys, upon hearing this news, went, okay, wait a minute. Was that what was in the fine print through which I scrolled before clicking apply, you know, accept the terms of the new covenant, right? Like, I need to stop doing that and start reading more. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, notice that in the passage, Moses' name shows up. And Moses, like the custom taught by Moses, Moses was the one who delivered the Old Testament laws to the children of Israel at Mount Sinai, like all 613 of them. And so practically, what this meant was that the more tradition-loving Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were advocating for sort of a blended covenant model, a covenant where followers of Jesus were to follow Jesus and they were also to follow Moses. Well, fortunately, before they could sharpen their surgical blades and start taking appointments, <clears throat> Paul and Barnabas showed up back in Antioch, and Luke tells us what happens next. It says this, this idea, brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So, Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles, as are the first followers of Jesus, and the elders— About this question. In other words, Paul and Barnabas and a few other Jesus followers decided to make the long trip up to Jerusalem for what was essentially the first church meeting in history. And it was so significant, scholars have a name for it. They call it the Jerusalem Council. And there was really only one item on the agenda that day, namely to answer the question Do you have to follow the Old Testament laws in order to be a Christian? Now, not surprisingly, this was a tense conversation. And Luke provides us with the minutes from the meeting. So here's what he tells us happened as the meeting began. He writes, Some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, and those are the Jewish religious leaders who loved following the rules, they stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. And so Luke tells us that, The meeting begins by this pro-Moses group led by a group of converted Jewish religious leaders, the the Pharisees, and they were adamant in their position that the Gentile believers had to obey all the old covenant rules, including the mandate for circumcision. And in response, the other side kind of makes their argument, this Jesus-only group led by Paul and Barnabas stands up, and they begin, well, they begin to tell stories because they had seen things and they had experienced things that pointed them to a very different reality. They said, you know, over and over and over again, we've been with Gentiles who are embracing Jesus apart from any commitment to follow the old covenant rules, and God is undeniably confirming his approval of that arrangement. Like, they're seeing it over and over and over again. And so, the Pharisees make their argument, Paul makes his argument, and then Luke tells us that eventually... Another guy stands up, Peter. He was the de facto leader of the first disciples of Jesus, and he was the de facto leader of the early church, and he weighs in. Here's what Peter says. He says, brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips. In other words, Peter says, I had this similar message and calling. This isn't just Paul, that I'm also one to take this message to the Gentiles. He says, the message of the gospel and believe. And he says, and God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did for us. He goes on, he made no distinction between us and them. For he purified their hearts, not through rule following, but he purified their hearts by faith. And I'm telling you, it is almost impossible for us to comprehend the seismic shift in both thinking and belief that were represented by Peter's words here. Like when Peter says, God made no distinction between us and them, he essentially affirmed his belief that God had fully thrown open the doors to the Jesus movement to non-Jewish people apart from any obedience to the Old Testament law. In other words, the divine approval that was once reserved for the Jewish people alone was now available to everyone who placed their faith in Jesus. And then as as Peter continued to speak, he acknowledged something that every single individual in that room knew but didn't really want to acknowledge. Here's, Here's what he says next. He says, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of disciples a yoke, that's a set of teachings here referring to the Old Testament law, that neither we nor our fathers had been able to bear? He says, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. How does salvation work? Peter, grace, it has grace from beginning to end. It's not the law, it's grace. That's the engine of this movement. In other words, like, Peter looks out and he says, guys, let's be honest. I mean, keeping the Old Testament law perfectly is impossible, and you all know it. I mean, as I imagine, he looks in the back, and he's like, you, Chaim, in the back, you're a hot mess, dude. Seriously, right? There's always a good Jewish guy named Chaim. Anyway, yeah. But I just imagine Peter looking at him and saying, listen, guys, if we who were raised on it and raised in it can't follow it fully, then how can we possibly suggest that Gentiles need to put themselves under it? Like, let's be honest here. Circumcision is nothing compared to the task of reorienting your entire life around the Jewish civil, moral, and religious code outlined in the Old Testament. Like, we never could do it. So why in the world would we ask them to try? Especially when you recognize that Jesus came to free us all from the obligations of the Old Testament by fulfilling it. Like it's had its time, and now there's something new. Well, I'm telling you, it took a few long years, but the early church eventually recognized that Jesus did not come to add to the old covenant rules. He came to establish a new covenant that completely replaced the old covenant. Moreover, and this is huge, they came to see that you can't mix and match the covenants. In fact, as Peter was sort of returning to his seat, another church leader stands up. His name was James, and he was the brother of Jesus. So he had a lot of weight in the early church as well. And here's what James says, and I love this. James says, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And just a a brief aside. And I just couldn't help myself. I, this, this verse, really since the very beginning, has driven everything we do here at Keystone. It, it's the idea that w- we need to fight any impulse to put anything, especially any religious rules or traditions or expectations, between anyone and a relationship with God other than the cross of Christ. I mean, those conversations go all the way back to our founding pastor, Gene DeYoung and Randy Wasink sitting in a room together and just going, okay, if we're going to create a new kind of church and we really want to put on display what Jesus had in mind for the world, man, this is it. We should not make it difficult for people who are turning to God. And again, that's been our heartbeat since the very beginning. Anyway, as uh, James continues, he gives us what might just be the most helpful statement in the entire New Testament when it comes to understanding the relationship a follower of Jesus is to have with the laws of the Old Covenant. So this is for you and me. Here's what he says. He says, we should not uh, put anything in between them. Instead, he says, we should write to them, telling them, and you see four things here, to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. And what I want to do is just put the list of those four things on the screen for a moment because I think there's something here you really need to see. I mean, what is going on with these four commands? And it's also interesting to note what doesn't show up here. You don't see, like, you shall not murder, you shall not steal. Like, so why, why these four? And, and the answer to that question can be found when you recognize that these four commands had absolutely nothing to do with Gentiles being required to keep the old covenant law. Like, that matter had been settled by Peter earlier in the meeting. I mean, Jewish believers were free to keep doing what they'd been doing, but Gentile believers were under absolutely no obligation to join them. So, that brings you back to these four things. If they had nothing to do with keeping the old covenant law, then what were they about? And I actually think there's a clue in the next verse, because as James continues to speak, he provides his rationale for these four, and he phrased it this way. He said, for Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. You're like, I don't see how that clears anything up, right? <laughs> like, what is going on here? Well, according to scholars, it really does clear things up, and here's how. What James is doing here is he's pointing out that there were a few things, like eating meat sacrificed to pagan idols, eating the meat of strangled animals also which would have been offered to pagan idols, and drinking blood that culturally speaking were so over-the-top offensive to the Jewish people who've been how they were raised that in order to keep the peace in the church between the Jewish and Gentile believers and because of the love and respect that were supposed to be the engines of the Jesus movement, Gentile Jesus followers should voluntarily make a few concessions for the sake of their Jewish brothers and sisters because they love them. In other words, uh, th- these three rules were a practical application of what it looks like to love your neighbor when that is right at the heart of what Jesus wants for his followers. Okay, so that explains three of the four. If we could, I Put that list back up if we could. Um, this list, that's the first three, but what about, what about the fourth one? What about sexual immorality? And I would argue that what's going on with the fourth one here is they want to curb a very different sort of appetite. And so James here instructs Gentile believers to abstain from sexual immorality because, honestly, that's good for everyone. Plus, if you think about it, anytime there's sexual immorality, someone is not being loved like God desires them to be loved. And so that is just a a categorical, like, those are the four things we need you to do. So, okay, check out what happens next because this is awesome. It says, the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. So just imagine maybe they were in a courtyard or maybe they were in a big living room and the letter is opened and they read the letter and check out what happens next. The people read it and they were glad for its encouraging message. And I bet they were, especially the dudes, right? Like I suspect more than a few of them signed up for the new members class the following Sunday because once you get that circumcision thing out of the way, it's a lot easier. Yeah. So what I'm telling you here, this decision by the Jerusalem Council, is absolutely mind-boggling in its implications to followers of Jesus, including you and me and the way we interact with the Old Testament. I mean, if you think about it, up until that moment in history, um, at that moment in history, they affirmed that unity in the church was more important than Gentiles being forced to obey the laws of Moses. Moreover, in addition to laying the groundwork for unity between Jews and Gentile believers, the Council's letter signaled a formal break from the view that the Jewish scriptures were to serve as the foundation for the behavior of Jesus' followers. Like, up to this point in church history, followers of Jesus had been taking their behavioral cues both from the teachings of Jesus and from the law of Moses. And the decision of the Jerusalem Council was intended to change that, at least for the Gentiles. But as you know, old habits die hard, and the struggle against blending the old and new covenants was one that Paul had to fight over and over and over again as he made his way around the Mediterranean Rim. In fact, that's why this topic shows up in so many of his letters that were later included in the New Testament. In fact, years ago I was talking to a a seminary student, and he was asking me, you know, what are the big issues that the early church dealt with? Like, if you had to give me, like, you know, a top three what do you think was the, you know, these early believers? And he was trying to draw a parallel to today. And I said, okay. And I said, well, what do you think? And he said, well, I mean, I bet it was like forgiveness, right? Like we receive forgiveness from God. We're to be people who forgive. And I said, yep, yeah, that, that was, yep, yeah, that's maybe up there, but it's certainly not number one. And was, I mean, he goes, really? And he says, well, what was, it, was it sexual immorality? I mean, the pagan world, Roman world, you know, people that was all sorts of off the rails. Was that what Paul talked about more, more than anything? And I said, yeah, that was really, that shows up a lot, but that wouldn't be number one either. Said, generosity, it's got to be generosity. It, like, you know, you receive generosity. God gave us Jesus. We need to be people who give. I said, yeah, that, that shows up a lot too. That's not, that wouldn't be number one either. And he looked at me and goes, well, what's number one? And I said, the number one thing that you see over and over and over again when you read these letters is the question, how Jewish do you have to be in order to be a Christian? Do you have to convert to Judaism before placing your faith in Jesus? In, in fact... Uh, your homework for this week, and I'll be calling you on Wednesday to make sure you're doing it as individuals. So there you go, right? I want to challenge you to actually read Paul's four-page letter to Christians living in the Roman province of Galatia. It's called Galatians. With this as a background, you're going to see things you you can't even believe. We printed the most significant portion of Paul's argument, which is chapter five of Galatians, on the back of the handout and discussion guide you can pick up on your way out today. So if you're heading to lunch, I would encourage you to just grab one. Uh, you can read it together if you're with your kids or whatever. There's nothing weird like that one verse I showed you in the Old Testament. Nothing like that in there. I'm just kind of like, oh, hello, Culver's. Yes. And uh, yeah. Yeah. And then on the flip side, there's some discussion questions. Would love you just to experience, um, after hearing this talk, experience what Paul writes in Galatians. And if you're an overachiever, uh, this is also the backstory for the letter we call Romans, which is Paul's longest letter. And I'm telling you, when you read Romans through the lens of the Jew-Gentile thing, boy, it really, really clears a lot of confusion up. But um, what I want to do is just to sort of give you uh, a taste of what you're going to read. Um, I want to give you a section from Galatians that is in, um, in the, also on the back of the program. But midway through, a rather epic rant about the dangers of blending the covenants. Paul writes this. He says, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised, that he is obligated to obey the whole law, like the whole law of Moses, 613. You're all in or you're not in at all. Then he goes on. He said, well, why, Paul? What's the big deal? You, he says, who are trying to be justified by the law, that's the problem. He's like, justification by following the law, that's not how it works. He says, if that's what you think, you've been alienated from Christ, and look at this, you have fallen away from grace. It's like over and over again, Paul wants to grab these believers and shake them. You have to understand, grace is the engine. Grace is the engine of the gospel. It's grace alone by faith alone. It's like Paul couldn't be any more clear. Jesus came to establish a new covenant relationship between people and God through the amazing grace shown when his blood was shed on the cross. And participation in that new covenant was and is activated by faith or belief or trust that Jesus did what he said that he would do, and not faith or belief or trust and following the rules of a previous covenant or really following any rules at all because you just can't mix the covenants. And I'm telling you, that, my friends, is the good news that would eventually change the course of human history. And it's the second thing that I really want you to know about the Bible. Okay, so we'll pick it up there next week. But for now, if you're here in the room, I'd love to invite you to stand and I'll close our time together in prayer. But um, also, once again, this week, we have some volunteers under the screen to the left. If you've come here and you'd just like to talk to someone or pray with someone, we would love to meet you just as soon as we're done praying and, and uh, have a conversation. So uh, let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we stand in your amazing grace this morning as we gather we thank you that you love us because you are good and not because we are good and we thank you for the invitation to be a part of the covenant that was cut when your son's body was broken and his blood was spilled for us i pray that we would be people who would take your grace to our world that we would reflect the grace that we have been demonstrated and that that we push back on the fear that so often accompanies religious pursuit, but we just embrace standing as your children because of the blood of your son. We will forever be grateful. It is in his name, the name of Jesus, the name above all names that we pray. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week for part three.